so people will tune in and and listen to you know all the terrible news that's you know about to befall them. And uh, when you sort of step back and open yourself up to other points of view and optimistic points of view, you realize that the world is, uh, in spite of what we're going through today, you know, we're way better off than we were, you know, 100 years ago, 50 years ago, 30 years ago. I mean, with the advances that, you know, that have been made, there's not a really good reason not to be optimistic. And I think as an entrepreneur, you have to be, you know, you go into something thinking you're going to succeed or else you wouldn't, you wouldn't do it. Let's discover the Cleveland entrepreneurial ecosystem. We are telling the stories of its entrepreneurs and those supporting them. Welcome to the Lay of the Land podcast, where we're exploring what people are building in Cleveland. I'm coming to you live from Cleveland. Today, I had the pleasure of speaking with Lee Zappas. Lee was the former president of Zappas Communications, which had owned and operated WZAK and other radio stations across Cleveland, Akron, Youngstown, as well as Atlanta and Boston. And under his leadership, through a a transition to focus solely on what was coined as urban contemporary, a blend of of R&B, of smooth jazz, and of pop, WZAK had become Cleveland's number one radio station when it was ultimately sold in, in 1999. Between then and now, Lee continued his entrepreneurial journey, founding a multitude of other successful Cleveland based companies. And in parallel, on the investing side, uh, he had formed Zappas Capital Group, where he's investing in companies, many of which we will have and will feature on this podcast across Northeast Ohio, spanning technology, healthcare, real estate, and media. Uh, we cover a lot of ground in this conversation. And I I think you all will enjoy it as I did. So without further ado, here is our conversation. My father had started in the radio business in 1949, but as a hobby, not really as a uh, thought of it as, you know, ever to be a full-time business. He and my mom did a radio show for many years. And then in the early 60s, started an, an FM station here in Cleveland with a few other partners and then over the years, you know, I kind of grew up around the business and I always joked that it was no different than friends of mine who grew up in the restaurant business. You know, it was just, they'd go and hang out and they'd kind of see the way things ran and you sort of observed. And so that was me with the radio business. And I stayed in town and went to Cleveland State, got a degree in communications. And then in the early 80s, uh, we switched the uh, format of WZAK, which was our station from uh, nationality broadcasting to an urban contemporary format. And it's been urban ever since then, 1981. So, and it's still ranked one of the top stations in the city and recognized as a, you know, one of the leading stations in the country. And that's why I lived in Atlanta for a while. We bought a station down there for a while. Uh, we owned it for about four years and that's why I moved down there to run it. And it was also an urban station called KISS 104.1, it was called. And we were competing with V103, which was the big legendary urban station. It was a lot of fun. In hindsight, I wish we would have kept that station because Atlanta, like I said, has been growing like crazy. Uh, but we've done okay. You know, radio in, in Cleveland is really kind of considered the entertainment business. You know, I always joke with my friends who worked in LA radio that they were kind of on the bottom of the food chain when it came to entertainment. You had movie stars out there, rock stars, TV stars, you know, all kinds of uh, people. And then you had radio. Whereas in Cleveland, all we really had was radio and maybe some of the local news celebrities. But we were at the top of the entertainment food chain here in town. So it was a great time. Great industry, great way to be exposed to a lot of different things in business. Early on in the uh, history of the life of the station, we hired 
two key people, a gentleman by the name of Mike Hilber, who was our sales manager, who was extremely um, you know, effective at his job and kind of drove the beginning success of the radio station. And then a few months later, we hired a guy named Lynn Tolliver, who was our program director and did mornings, did afternoon. He was a very, very well-known air personality, and he built a really great team around the programming side. And, you know, Lynn and uh, Mike were together with us from basically a year after we'd switched the formats till the time we sold in the station in 1999. So that was that was really the key to our success, having a real strong group of managers, whatever you want to call them, and then the, the staff that they each assembled underneath them. Uh, that was really kind of the, uh, the linchpin of our success is the people that we had working at the station. And there were some really very, very talented people that made the whole difference in that business. Because the reality is, you know, every radio station, if you're in a specific format, has this access to the same music, you know, the same weather forecast, the same whatever. It's the people that you assemble that present that content that makes makes the difference. And I'm still a big believer in, in radio and local radio. You know, streaming is fantastic. It's, you know, another great option for people. But when you listen to a radio station, you're, you kind of, you think of yourself as listening to a, um, you're, you're part of a community and you're, there's a joint shared listening to that radio station. You might not be together the same place to listen to it, but you are listening, you know, to the same, you know, to linear programming. And I think that's really makes people feel connected to the station. And again, the people that are presenting that music and programming is the key to that success. If the content isn't the differentiating factor, you know, when you talk about growing and, and building this to, to be the best uh, in Cleveland's top station, how, how did you go about, you know, differentiating yourself in the business to, to build that team, to attract the talent and to, you know, propel yourself to where you guys ultimately, you know, built it? Uh, I think, you know, back then the, the, the term corporate culture really wasn't, you know, widely known or maybe it wasn't even known at the time. I don't know when that term was coined. Uh, but there was, a, uh, in hindsight, you look back on that, there was a corporate culture that we had developed and it, it stemmed for the, you know, from my father on down. I mean, you know, it was a family business and we took a lot of pride in it and, you know, it was kind of our family identity. We had a philosophy or my dad had a philosophy that permeated from the top down that we didn't, you know, you wouldn't ask somebody to do something that you wouldn't do yourself. And I think that was an important part of the, uh, our success. We had a great team and I think we had a, a warm and inviting environment. You know, we had a, a very diverse staff, young and old, black and white, Latinos. I mean, there was, you know, there's just a, a lot of uh, respect for everyone and what each person brought to the table. And I think that's really what helped attract and keep talented people. Yeah. What? What role do you think that, you know, family played in, in your growth as an entrepreneur and in the business? How was it, you know, working in the, in the family business with, with your father? And how does that add to the dynamic, I guess, of, of the work you were doing? You know, I think, you know, my dad was always very entrepreneurial minded. He was always open to new ideas, trying things. You know, he, was, he had the attitude, well, if that guy can do it, so can we. He never had any limitations. Both he and my mom never said, oh, you can't do that. He was always very young open to new ideas. And I think that rubbed off on me. And he was a perpetual optimist. He was very optimistic. And, and I think I've become more optimistic as I've gotten older. And uh, I think, you know, that all came from him. And, you know, from a family business, you know, it's like a double-edged sword. You know, a lot of people are like, oh, you're lucky. You've got to, you work in the family business. 
And, you know, there's a lot of benefits to it, but there's also the downside is that if you screw up, you know, it's not just your job that's, you know, you're going to lose. You, know, you could, you know, put the whole business out, you know, <laughs> put the company out of business and then you've got right. a whole family that's kind of depending on it, not to mention our family, but other people's families. So there's a lot of interesting dynamics in a family business. And I think uh, for, for it to be successful, a family business to be successful, I think you always have to keep growing and giving people new opportunities or else there's really kind of it stymies their, um, you know, upside. So you need to be able to, you know, constantly innovate and expand the business to be able to grow and give people not only in the family, but outside the family, new opportunities. And that's what we tried to do with adding new markets and trying to grow and expand. And so that was uh, one of our key differentiators. I feel like uh, optimism and entrepreneurship are, are kind of two sides of the same coin in a lot of ways. And I'd love for you to just expand upon what you mean by you, you feel you've gotten more optimistic as you've gotten older. I think, you know, when you're younger, so it's easy to be cynical and think you're, you know, clever and being, oh, I'm, a, uh, oh, I'm just being realistic. And, no, you're not. You're being pessimistic. You know, you, you sort of have to have this, you know, optimistic attitude. I heard a great line recently. Uh, somebody said, uh, nobody's ever written a book on how to be a pessimist. <laughs> you know, it's, <laughs> it's kind of a fundamental human condition. You know, I've heard people talk about sociologists and anthropologists about how, you know, they talk about how, why bad news spreads faster than good news. It's because, you know, we're wired that way. So thousands of years ago, you know, it wasn't important to hear about what a beautiful sunrise it was. It was important to hear, hey, there's a bear lurking in the woods. And if you're not careful, it could uh, kill you. When you're... And then also, you know, I think from that stems being pessimistic, like, oh, woe is me, you know, the, the world is going to end. And we're never going to go back to normal. You hear a lot of that, you know, during the pan, you know, this whole pandemic thing, whether, oh, this, you know, we're doomed. And, you know, if you watch media, local media or national media, the news, I mean, their whole business model based on getting people scared and worked up. And, you know, so they tune in. So people will tune in and, and listen to, you know, all the terrible news that's you know about to befall them. And uh, when you sort of step back and open yourself up to other points of view and optimistic points of view, you realize that the world is, uh, in spite of what we're going through today, you know, we're way better off than we were, you know, 100 years ago, 50 years ago, 30 years ago. I mean, with the advances that, you know, that have been made, there's not a really good reason not to be optimistic. And I think as an entrepreneur, you have to be, you know, you go into something thinking you're going to succeed or else you wouldn't, you wouldn't do it. And I think as an investor, you're optimistic that something is going to succeed. Or else, you know, if you weren't, then you shouldn't be investing anything. I was talking to somebody today for coffee. We were talking about entrepreneurialism. And the fascinating thing about it is that you have to be, if you're not optimistic, then it's probably, you should just get a regular job where you can do whatever and collect a paycheck. Uh, but as an investor, if you're not optimistic and, and you do your due diligence and go very much, uh, you know, do as much due diligence and study things call people, do whatever. I mean, the, the reality is you should never uh, do an early stage investment because 90% of them fail. But it's that 10% that succeed. And that's what most people are betting that their investment is going to be one of those 10% that succeeds. You know, I think optimism is a uh, great asset to have as an entrepreneur or as an early stage investor. Yeah, I think that that makes a lot of sense. The, the general belief that the future 
and what you're working on or investing in from the investor or entrepreneur's perspective is going to be better <laughs> in some degree than, than the present is kind of at the heart of, to me, like what it is to try and build a company or invest in someone trying to build a company. We'll get to you know, how, how you approach investing and kind of the, the work you're doing at the moment, but I'd love to just kind of paint the picture of, of how it was that you went from you know, building WZAK to, to be the station that it is and ultimately you know, exiting that and, and your, your journey from the role of entrepreneur to investor. Why did you leave Sappis Communications? What was your you know, thought process and, and how did you ultimately come to the world of investing? Well, I've, I've always had an interest in technology and the, you know, the application of technology to, um, and at the time it was to the radio industry. And uh, it was experimenting with uh, new ways to get audio from one place to the other. And in Cleveland, we are, uh, we're, we are fortunate and we're fortunate to have a company that was based out of here called Telos, T-E-L-O-S, run by a guy named Steve Church. And Steve was quite the visionary and an engineer and just, you know, brilliant, brilliant guy. Luckily for me, his offices were right below ours when we, our offices were on Superior and 17th Street or 18th. He was the first guy in the world, to my knowledge, that licensed MP3 technology from uh, this Fraunhofer Institute in uh, Germany. And he licensed it for use, to be used in broadcast equipment. But he also developed a um, codec to do audio over the internet. He introduced me to this uh, MP3 and I'm like, holy shit, you know, I knew it was going to be, you know, really revolutionary, but I had no idea it was going to be turn into what it had, you know, has turned into. So I had this interest in uh, technology from being introduced to it uh, from Steve Church and his partner, Frank Fodi, who still is running the company. Steve, unfortunately, passed away a few years ago. Uh, so I got interested in that. And we, we were the first station to use digital audio workstations, uh, storing our audio on uh, hard drives. And back then it was like hard drives were very small and very expensive. But I went, um, I used to get a magazine called Red Herring, which was like a, uh, the magazine of the internet age, you know, kind of the, covered all the different internet companies. And back, it was during the dot-com boom. And I went to uh, a Red Herring conference in Atlanta. It was part of Comdex. And it was, it was kind of like a Shark Tank pitch. I mean, business would get up there and present to a bunch of different investors and uh, say, hey, you know, schedule another meeting and decide to invest. And I met two gentlemen there. They were sitting at a table when they knew each other. They were both from Silicon Valley and I came in. They welcomed me to sit with them. They kind of really were helpful to me in kind of teaching me the whole, you know, technology investing side of the business. So one guy, David Bloomberg, he's still, um, st I still stay in touch with him, not as regularly as I used to, but he's a uh, VC out in Silicon Valley. At the time when I met him, he was specializing in emerging Israeli co technology companies. And then the other guy was a guy named Thanos Triant, and he was a, a CTO, I think, I'm trying to remember, at uh, some big companies, and he was off doing um, technology investing. And they were, you know, very helpful to me, showing me uh, the ropes. And I made my first investment back in 1986 with a company at the time it was called Snap Technologies, nothing to do with the current Snap people, <laughs> but the, uh, they ended up changing their name to Embark, and they, their whole business uh, was working with uh, MBA programs to manage their online uh, application process. And, you know, this is, you know, sound, today it sounds like pretty mundane and lame, but back in 1996, it was pretty revolutionary. You know, a lot of things were being, you know, moving online and 
So that was my first uh, taste of technology investing. And that company, it didn't do as well as we hoped because uh, the dot-com bubble burst and they uh, had missed the window to go take, go um, do an IPO by just a few months. And they ended up being acquired by Princeton Review. But I stayed in touch with the, the founders of the company and one guy I still talk to on uh, once or twice a year. The other two I haven't talked in a while, but you know, I had a good relationship with them. And you know, that sort of started me on the whole you know, technology investing. So you know, I've made a lot of mistakes along the way, but have, have had some nice successes. And, you know, in this business, it's, you know, and I remember this one of the first things I, uh, David Bloomberg taught me was that, you know, I said, how, how can that possibly work? You know, how does that make any sense when you only have one success out of 10? And he laid it out for me with the example, you've got, you got a $10 million fund, you put a million dollars in 10 different ventures, three of them go bust, you know, three of them sort of break even, three of them give you a two or three times return and you're still in the hole, but the 10th one returns a hundred times to one and, you know, it's made up for all your failures and then some, and everyone thinks you're a genius. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so that's kind of like the model and that's kind of the, the, uh, you know, what I kind of, you know, try to do. Yeah. B- building on that model, you know, cause that's kind of from the numbers perspective, how, how it plays out in terms of, you know, quantity of deals you're investing in and the expected outcome of those. But in, in terms of the approach that you take when you are thinking about which companies to invest in and ultimately, you know, which companies not, not to invest in, it, it's more, I, I would imagine than just a, you know, a, a random numbers game when it comes to your decision-making process. And so how is it that you think about the thesis, uh, the philosophy of, of Zappos Capital? How, how is it that you're, you're thinking about companies here in Cleveland and, you know, the approach that, that you're taking when in both your diligence and deal flow, uh, looking for companies and as companies approach you? No, my deal flow is kind of, you know, uh, I have decent deal flow here in town. It's, to be honest with you, I don't know why, how people find me, but, um, but here in town, we're, you know, fairly active in the whole early stage investing space. And so we get to look at a lot of different deals. And for us, it, it comes down to the people for sure. You know, we all were big believer, the jockey instead of the horse. Uh, you need the horse too, but you know, you can have the greatest horse in the world, but if the jockey isn't skilled, you know, you're not really going to have much success. We also, we want an opportunity to make 10 times our investment. Not that it always works, but we've had a number of them that have returned that. We prefer software as a service. We like that model, B2B software as a service. We like to invest in companies where we think we can add value beyond just writing a check and, you know, getting an update every six months. You know, we want to get involved. So, you know, some of the companies that I've invested in in the past, I've, you know, attended trade shows with them, worked a booth, gone on sales calls, you know, done pretty much what I could to help these entrepreneurs be successful. And those were younger guys that were kind of early on in their careers, you know, so I was able to lend, you know, a little bit more credence, you know, actual, you know, that with uh, Charlie Lowheed's company, there's really, there's not much I can add to his group, but, you know, that's an example of, you know, betting on, uh, I like Charlie's idea and I like Charlie, I've known him for years and I think he's, you know, going to be successful because he's just got that drive, you know, some people call it grit, uh, some people just, you know, they're relentless. One of my favorite entrepreneurs and a uh, woman I invested in uh, a number of years ago, Karen, Kara Katz, got a company called Playlist, you know, although uh, we're you know, playing around with that name. And she is 
relentless. She will not let any, uh, she's dealt with all kinds of adversity around the company. She just, she's like a pit bull. She will not let go and she will shake, <laughs> shake whatever until something <laughs> comes loose. I mean, she is just a terrific entrepreneur. And again, optimistic. And because if she wasn't optimistic, she would, you know, the things that you end up coming across, you know, would probably, most people would just kind of throw up their hands like, ah, shoot, uh, there's, that's it. I can't go any further. And I've talked about that too. And kind of when I look back at my radio career, we had all kinds of crazy things happen. We had a workplace shooting uh, years ago. That was just uh, one of the more horrific things that I've ever had to deal with. I said to somebody, if somebody were to say to me, five years before that happened or 10 years, whenever we started the company that you would have this and this and this, I, I would have maybe at the time I would have said, gosh, I can never, I'll never be able to get through those kind of things. That's just crazy. Let's just give up now. You know, you don't want to look too far ahead into the future and get yourself all worked up. You just have to think every day is going to be better than the next or the uh, last one. Yeah. It, it sounds like people uh, have been, when you think about success, both from your time as a builder um, and what you look for as an investor, really one of the most important things to you. I'm curious how you gauge, you know, people and and grit and those qualities when either you you know you're trying to build a team or you're looking to make an investment. What 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 is it that you're looking for, and you know, how is it that you're you're gauging the the qualities that you're looking for in in those in those kinds of people? It's hard to measure it. You sort of get a sense after a while. But I like people that are that seem like they have a something that to prove to themselves or to somebody else. Kind of like having a chip on their shoulder in the sense that I'm going to succeed and nobody's going to stop me and I'm just going to you know grind it. You know, it's like um, there's all kinds of cliches that they talk about. It's not how many times you get fall down, fall down. So many times you get up. You know, those kind of things. I'd like to think that I have a sense of somebody's uh, grit when I meet them and get to know them. First of all, I have to like the person. If I'm going to be investing with them and I'm going to be spending a lot of time with them, I want it, I want it to be somebody that I enjoy talking to. And so, you know, that to me is key. It just comes from a certain sense of having done it for a while. And of course, Rich Von Jerna, who's my partner in our CFO, he's a huge resource. And I think he helps on the people side as well, kind of judging and my wife's great too <laughs> she's always she's been helpful and the few times i haven't listened to her i like regretted it you know and that uh, she saw something that i maybe i didn't pick up on one of the things i've had a problem in the past with as far as when it comes to people is and i think i've learned the lesson but i maybe fall in love with an idea and then thought that maybe i could fix the people that were trying to execute the idea and you really can't fix somebody in a startup kind of environment because the the time is limited you know there's only so much money there's only so much time you have to um, make a go of it so you can't really spend your time trying to get somebody on board uh, that maybe isn't the right fit yeah what what you had said earlier i, I don't remember where where i read this but uh, i think the phrase was chips on shoulders put chips in pockets yeah uh, <laughs> yeah i think there's something to be said for it i think just you know you know, that's why I also like immigrant entrepreneurs. You know, a lot of them come here feeling like they have an opportunity that they have to take advantage of. So I think that's a big part of the immigrants' uh, successes in this country. Yeah, I think that's actually a good segue. I want to 
I want to tie back into Cleveland specifically for for a moment. If you had to to make a request uh, for startups in, in Cleveland, what what is your request for startups in Cleveland? And and just to to add some some context, at least in terms of of where I'm thinking about this question, you know, like talking to entrepreneurs here in Cleveland, I think there is from a, a venture capital perspective, it feels to me like lack of access to early stage capital is cited often as a prevailing ailment of the space and ecosystem here. And so, I, you know, I'm curious your perspective on unlimited access to capital and early stage funding in Cleveland. Um, but from your perspective as an investor, you know, what what is it that you wish, you know, more people were working on here specifically or things that from the entrepreneur's perspective that that they could you know be thinking about or are focusing on and yeah we'd just love to hear your take on that well Cleveland's always had that uh, rap of having a not a very healthy early stage funding sources and I don't think it's gotten any better maybe even gotten worse over the years I know Columbus has done you know seems to have done very well they have drive capital down there which has been very successful you know they've had some big successes and we've had some big successes here in town too but you know they didn't really kind of create this large number of cap table wasn't such that dozens of people became multimillionaires because of a successful exit. And that sort of helps feed the ecosystem, you know, and I think Pittsburgh has had that success because of Carnegie Mellon and they, you know, kind of early on, they were more advanced than we are. And I, I think that that's still probably the case in Pittsburgh. So I think it'd be nice to be able to uh, have more angel and early stage investors here in town. There's lots of money here. It's just, you know, for whatever reason, there hasn't been a huge appetite to do early stage investing other than the North Coast people, North Coast Angel Fund and those and their funds. You know, Jumpstart's done their thing. Uh, but other than that, there's really not too many people doing it. And I think that would really, I think, be helpful. You know, yeah. Scott Shane is working on something. Bill Manby down in Akron is working on something. There's, you know, there's a lot of people doing things. You know, maybe I'm just not coming to, maybe I'm just not hearing about the deals like I used to, I think it would be helpful for the community and as a whole if there was more money for early stage investing. Why do you think that is the case? If there is capital to be deployed, and then you know there are people here building startups, it feels kind of like a you know, chicken and egg problem to some yeah. degree of, of what comes first. But it sounds like both pieces of the the puzzle are are there. It is kind of perplexing because you know Jumpstart's <laughs> been at it for a long time. I mean, they they do a great job of advocating for the um, uh, startup community and the technology community. And, you know, and maybe, maybe I'm limiting myself to just looking at, you know, technology and software investing. Uh, I've always just liked that model, the whole kind of build it once and sell it a thousand times or a hundred thousand times versus, you know, a piece of hardware that needs uh, a lot of uh, capital intensive. Although that, uh, was that Mr. Is it Mr. Beam? That was you know, nice success. I don't know the gentleman who was behind it, but they're the ones I think that sold to um, Ring and then Ring was bought by Amazon. Is that the way it went? Yeah, yeah. I do recall hearing about that. Yeah, that was a couple of years ago. And then, of course, RV Share has had a great success. They just raised another $100 million. And, and within three, that was another $100 million raise. I mean, shit in my world, $100 million would be a nice exit. So there's, you know, there's people and there's talent here. And perhaps if some of those companies are our successes, you know, like say for, you know, eventually RV share will end up being sold and the founders, whatever, will see a big payday and perhaps they'll 
be motivated to help the Northeast Ohio startup ecosystem by, you know, maybe creating a fund. And again, that's, you know, it, it would be nice, but you can't really count on that. And uh, so the people have to kind of do it themselves and, you know, go outside of Northeast Ohio and look for capital. You know, Stan Garber and Alex Yakubovich, who did uh, Scout, I mean, when they were ready to start start Scout, they came to see me and they were, you know, running to uh, raise money at a certain valuation. And I thought it was too high. And I, you know, like I tell every entrepreneur, you know, early stage uh, valuation is more of an art than it is a science, you know. And, you know, they went out to California and they got a bunch of money early on at a much higher valuation uh, than I thought I was ready to to agree to. And, and I was fortunate enough to get in on that deal early on. But, you know, they didn't limit themselves to just Northeast Ohio. So I think as an entrepreneur, you know, it's nice to be able to do it in your own backyard because there's a cost in trying to go out and raise money. I mean, there's a lot of time involved, time that's uh, being taken away from trying to build your product and uh, grow your customer base. You mentioned that your focus or the, the deals that you like to invest in more really just stem kind of from technology and the lower marginal cost of distribution. And But I, I think that you've taken kind of a, an industry agnostic approach, investing across technology, healthcare, real estate, media, and again, tying it back to Cleveland, what have you kind of seen as the, the drivers of change in the city over the last decade? You know, you, you've spoken to how it's changed and how it's stayed the same in, in some ways. You know, people really often point to healthcare as where a lot of the innovation and progress and technology is, is at play here in Cleveland. I'm, I'm curious your perspective on, on that as well. Healthcare, obviously, people gravitate towards it here because of uh, the clinic in UH and they cast a big shadow. So we're really fortunate that Northeast Ohio, we've got these world-class healthcare facilities and, you know, there's ideas being spun out of there quite often. And so that's kind of the natural thing everyone sort of wants to gravitate to. But there's also, um, you know, obviously manufacturing cornerstone of uh, Northeast Ohio for generations, I guess you, you want to think of it that way. And I think that's, you know, probably where, you know, our other strength lies. You know, I think there's just a lot of very, very smart people here in Northeast Ohio, hardworking, not flashy. You know, you can get things done here. You know, the nice part about Northeast Ohio is it's a small community. And if you've got a good reputation, then, you know, you can, it'll open a lot of doors for you. On the downside, if you don't have a good reputation, you're not going to really get a lot of traction. You might have to move. <laughs> in the last, say, 10 years, I think, you know, I'm not really sure that uh, we've moved the ball in a significant manner. But, you know, we've had, had, you know, more successes. All the efforts that have been put forth over the years has had a positive effect. I think the entrepreneurs I come across, I think, are more realistic. I, I don't see really any get-rich-quick kind of schemes where entrepreneurs put a business plan together and their sole kind of, they were more motivated by having a, you know, big exit than actually solving a problem. The entrepreneurs I, I talk to are really more about building a, a great business than having an eye on an exit as soon as possible. You know, we always say that, you know, if you run a profitable business or, you know, at least break even, we like a business that can get to break even fairly quickly because then you don't, you have a lot more flexibility. And if you run that, if you run that kind of business, you'll always be able to find an exit, you know. Hmm. When you think about great businesses and I imagine, you know, dozens, hundreds that you have had the opportunity to meet with and potentially invest in over the, you know, the past few years. 
What are the the ones that that got away from a an anti portfolio perspective? Are there ones that, in retrospect, you you know wish that you had you know different information at the time or thought about differently? And uh, yeah, I would love to to hear your retrospection on on maybe some of the ones that that got away. Yeah, I don't think there's any one that I you know had the opportunity to invest and I didn't uh, because of you know I missed it. You know, like um, oh, I didn't. Gee, I didn't think of it in those terms, you know, that kind of, that thought process. There's a bunch of them that I wish I got into, but didn't have the opportunity, like Explorers, for one. <laughs> you know, uh, I think Steve McHale is one of the smartest guys I've ever come across, and, and Charlie, of course, you know, you know, they're just really smart guys. That, and again, I, they both have that kind of determination that they're going to succeed. So that's, you know, Explorers is, you know, one up there. You know, Cover My Meds is another business that I, didn't get an opportunity on, and of course, all the ones that were successful, Jay, I wish I was in on. Uh, but, but, but to be honest with you, I told somebody that you know, say when Facebook was out raising money, if they had pitched me Facebook at the time, I might have uh, gone, you know what? Eh, I don't think so. There's already MySpace, and they seem to be kicking ass, and you know, there's Friendster, you know, social network for you know, college kids. Uh, you know, I don't see it. You know, that, that that very well could have been my attitude. You know, and of course. You know, Mark Zuckerberg has a uh, is a little quirky, and so I might have been turned off to that, or who knows. But uh, there's not really anyone that I kind of look back on and kick myself for not uh, recognizing. To close out, a question that we we like to ask everyone on the show as we try and you know map the land is for you know the the kind of buried treasure that that you have in in Cleveland. You know, what is your your kind of favorite? hidden gem of the city that you appreciate? Uh, a hidden gem? Gosh, I'm not sure if there's a hidden gem, but there's, I think the metro parks are probably our greatest asset, even more so than the lake. I mean, the lake is fantastic, but, you know, a lot of, most people don't have access to the lake, but the metro parks are just a phenomenal resource and asset to Northeast Ohio. My niece has a fantastic gallery in the Colonial Arcade called W Gallery, and she does a fantastic job. She's a jewelry designer and you know, studied in Italy and represents a lot of different artists. And so I think that, you know, if I, you know, really thought about it, and of course I'm biased, but I think it's a, a wonderful shop and a great place to, to meet artists and, you know, pick up unique um, items. All right, Lee. Well, if, if people have any questions or things that they would want to follow up with, with you about, where's the best place for, for them to find you? And they can reach out to me on LinkedIn, although, uh, you know, if they have a question, they can reach me on LinkedIn. I never accept people's offers to connect on LinkedIn unless I've met them in person or have done business with them. But they can send me an email to lzappas at zappascapital.com. And, you know, with any ideas, I'm happy to give advice to anybody who is seeking it. And uh, with the caveat that it's, uh, you know, it's free advice. So, it, you know, it's maybe not worth much. <laughs> but it's, uh, you know, I'm happy to look at people's decks. Uh, give them feedback on their investor pitch. If it's something that they think would be of interest to me, you know, we like elder care. We've been in that business for 30 some years. Our family, you know, media, of course, is kind of, I always think of myself primarily as a media marketing guy. You know, we like um, software as a service, you know, B2B stuff. And I would much rather invest in a business development professional that had an idea for a product, but maybe didn't have the funding or know-how on how to develop it 
than a product person who's developed some really awesome, or at least what they think is an awesome thing, but has no idea on how to sell it. Lee, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your your story and your, and your background. Really appreciate having you on the on the show. Thanks, Jeffrey. Nice talking to you. That's all for this week. Thanks for listening. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show. So shoot us an email at layoftheland at upside.fm or find us on Twitter at podlayoftheland, at thetagan, or at sternhefe, J-E-F-E. We'll be back here next week at the same time to map more of the land. If you or someone you know would make a good guest for our show, please email us or find us on Twitter and let us know. And if you love our show, please leave a review on iTunes. That goes a long way in helping us spread the word and continue to help bring high quality guests to the show. Jeff and I decided there were a couple of things we wanted to share with you at the end of the podcast. And so here we go. Tegan Horton and Jeffrey Stern developed the Lay of the Land podcast in collaboration with the Up Company LLC. At the time of this recording, we did not own equity or other financial interests in the companies which appear on this show unless otherwise indicated. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinions of Founders Get Funds and its affiliates or actual and its affiliates or any entity which employ us. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. We have not considered your specific financial situation nor provided any investment advice on this show. Thanks for listening and we'll talk to you next week.